Welcome to Weekend Warriors. It's the foreign affairs podcast that asks, what else is happening in the world? I'm Essie Cup. Now, if you've been paying attention to any foreign policy this week, and I know that's, um, that's a big ask because there's some pretty important stuff happening domestically over in, in Washington. But if you've been paying any attention, you may have seen the bombshell investigation by the Washington Post, which found that top U.S. officials have been misleading the public about the Afghanistan war since the earliest days of the conflict. That's according to thousands of pages of confidential documents obtained by the paper. This broke just as the Trump administration has been trying to iron out a peace deal with the Taliban. I know it sounds like a familiar story, uh, the government lying to us about a war, but the Afghanistan war was long touted as the good war in contrast to the war in Iraq, which was, as we now know, entered under misleading pretenses by the Bush administration. Now, both President Obama, President Trump have tried to extract us from Afghanistan and in different capacities. Our focus on Iraq, though, has understandably waned over the past few years. Meanwhile, you might not know it, but violence and protests have been flaring up in Iraq. Just a week ago there, at least 12 civilians were massacred after dozens of gunmen stormed a protest in central Baghdad. Since October 1st, Iraqis have been protesting unemployment, government corruption, the lack of basic services. It's all been leading to a government crackdown and, and calls for government leaders to step down. 432 people have been killed in that time frame. And the prime minister finally agreed to step down and nominate a new leader. Iraq is teetering on the edge of failed state status following open-ended American military intervention that led to hundreds of thousands of military and civilian deaths. So is Iraq our problem anymore? Well, an unstable actor in that region in particular is, is dangerous to the rest of the world, including us, as we know all too well. So perhaps we should be more concerned with what's happening in Iraq, in addition to Yemen and Syria and other failing states. So if that's the case, if, if we should be paying more attention, well, what can or should be done? What are the costs? Well, my guest today is Dan Gabriel, former CIA counterterrorism officer who completed six tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's also the director and executive producer of this year's documentary film, Mazel, which followed Iraqi forces during uh, 2016's 100,000-strong offensive to liberate Iraq's second largest city from ISIS. Dan, welcome. Great to be here, Essie. And, and that's, a, that's a really, really succinct uh, overview of, of really what's happened in the region in the last 60 days. Uh, you know, it's, I think, where you can't talk about Iraq uh, and Iran separately anymore, and, and to that extent, perhaps even Afghanistan. So what we're what I believe we're seeing is, is really the remaking of the modern Middle East, uh, almost the follow-on, if you will, to the Arab Spring, uh, that I do believe is, is going to be more, um, more significant and more tumultuous than, than what we saw, what was it, seven or eight years back. Wow. Well, I want to talk more about Iraq in your film. But before we get into that, as someone who also served in Afghanistan, I want to get your take on this invest investigation um, about the Afghanistan war that came out this week, how so many government officials now spanning three separate administrations misled the public and manipulated the data. Just your, your take on that. 
this is the biggest secret that never was. Um, everything, of course, in, in the report to the Washington Post, just unbelievable reporting and yeah. almost surprising that it hasn't been done before. Uh, but these are the conversations that you would have with people in the know, people that I serve with, uh, people above my pay grade, uh, people in the, in the diplomatic corps, generals, aid workers. This, this is common knowledge uh, that this is what was happening. And I think, you know, the, 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 the disconnect is that the, the talking points that their that their public affairs people would give them before they would go on the shows to talk about such things as Afghanistan and the Taliban just were, were so liberal, if you will, in terms of with the truth uh, that they, they just really became detached from reality. But none of that, uh, none of what you read in the Washington Post report this week, which I absolutely encourage everybody to read it, it it's, it's must must read reporting. None of that is a surprise to anybody that's there. And, and of course, wow. it puts a lot of pressure uh, on, on generals and our leadership, uh, including General Petraeus. It really doesn't paint him in a great light yeah. uh, or Kelly Lewis or any of these other guys, including the, the National Command Authority, the president. Of course, Obama, you know, uh, he was he was president for eight years of, of, the, of the turmoil in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bush for, what, I guess six and Trump going on three and a half now. So, you know, it, the, I mean, they're, they're all they're all involved in it. Uh, well, thank you for that. I appreciate that that insight. And and let's shift now to to Iraq. What what made you first want to make a movie about Mosul? Well, look, I was in Mosul in two thousand four, two thousand five, uh, with mm-hmm. CIA. Now, of course, back then it was it was a very different place. It was actually not even the worst place in Iraq at that time, if you can believe it. Really, the focus was in the Sunni-held areas like Fallujah uh, and Ramadi. We saw a lot of bloodshed happening in, in those early years there. But what essentially happened is uh, Mosul became the center of the Sunni awakening and the U.S. effort to, you know, to basically engage the tribes, mm-hmm. the Sunni tribes, and to get them to take part in government. Of course, President Obama failed to negotiate the status of forces agreement. He left as precipitously and, uh, yeah. as we entered, if you would, and boom, you've got a power vacuum that ISIS just uh, was more than eager to fill, and that's exactly what they did. So ISIS, of course, being basically second-generation al-Qaeda in Iraq, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was there, we were, we were looking at Zarqawi and, of course, looking at him until he was dead in the, at the bottom of a ditch under the house that they dropped the J-Dam on. Uh, but really, the, the ISIS ideology grew out really even the more extreme version of uh, al-Qaeda, Salafist, Wahhabist ideology that Zarqawi uh, put forward, which was very brutal, very graphic and, and visual in nature in terms of willing to really use shock, uh, you know, the shocking video images uh, to, to bring about fear in the population. And so, ISIS perfected it. Yeah, and you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, ISIS is nothing if not predictable. They go where those power vacuums are. It's where it's why people like me were um, worried about Syria, you know, eight years ago um, and mm-hmm. why we're worried about Yemen and why we were worried about Libya. Um, they 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 are pretty predictable in terms of their their um, strategies. So how how potent of a threat is ISIS there now? Um, we hear a lot more about it, you know, in Syria. Okay, so let's let's start with what remains. It's uh, it's still a threat, you know, as a as a military organization, as a political entity. It's it's been defeated. I, I think we can say that the President Trump brought down the curtain uh, on the organization with the fall of Mosul, the follow on organization, uh, the follow on actions in Syria, and of course the killing of Baghdadi. 
but we need to be genuine about with each other is that the ideology remains just as potent. Mm. Uh, and the sectarian divisions are what, what allows the ideology to have such appeal. And ultimately, that's why Mosul is really not about ISIS. It's not about Islamic extremism. It's about the circumstances on the ground of the sectarian mistrust right. between these groups that allow that to grow. So what I what this is the question a lot of people, you know, handering over what responsibility do we have when we go into a place and then leave it, you know, with without wanting to nation build. Right. We all know the dangers of nation building. But without setting up this kind of vacuum, what in your mind, what is what is that balance for us? Well, I think most of the movie is actually uh, it, it's interesting because it, it parallels Operation Inherent Resolve. So Operation Inherent Resolve was what the Obama administration put together when they decided that ISIS was, in fact, no longer a JV team and they were going to get serious about a military response to that. Yeah. But OIR, as they called it in short, was designed to put an Iraqi face on the problem and then across the border, a Syrian face, too, if you will. But again, not to have U.S. forces out front leading the mission. It was always intended that the U.S. forces would be there to train, to equip, uh, to provide the air power. Uh, so when we made the film Mosul, that's what we did. There's actually no Americans in the film. This is a film about Iraqis fighting for the country, Iraqis, the different groups that make up their society, coming together to fight ISIS. Um, done a couple film screenings. Veterans have said, well, why, why weren't the, why was there no representation of U.S. forces there? Uh, and really with that explanation, they said, I would say, ah, okay, I got it. Mm. So it, it's really instructive in the sense it's, it's actually a playbook and a successful military operation strategy that straddled both the Obama and uh, Trump administration that shows us how we can deal with these types of uh, threats in that region without having 200,000 ground troops there. Well, when you say, you know, different different actors coming together. I mean, that's really an understatement, as your film depicts opposition to ISIS led to this really remarkable, rare alliance between Sunnis and Shiites and Christians and Kurds. And, you know, at one point you follow a, a female Sunni commander in a Shia military. So my question to you is, as remarkable as that alliance is, does that stay together when and if the threat of ISIS is completely neutralized somewhere? Or does that unity dissolve? You know, Essie, it goes back to that old adage, you know, there are no permanent alliances, there are only permanent interests. And I, I think really the question of Mosul and what it really focuses on, what comes next? Because yeah. uh, there's a hopeful element that does show the Sunnis and the Shia working together, the Yazidis and the Kurds and the Christians, all these different forces yeah. of, of varying level of capability, some highly trained, you know, U.S. Special Forces trained, Iraqi Golden Brigade counterterrorist units, and then the militias like the, the housewife, the widow that we're talking about, Omar Adi, who's a Sunni, and she's on the Iranian table. She says that she turns to her her, her colleague in the, in the kitchen while she's cooking a chicken stew uh, that she's about to feed to her troops. She leads a, a militia of several hundred men, and she, she's talking about, you know, we didn't get paid this week. And, of course, she means paid by the Iranians. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, all these uneasy allies come together, these states, the strange bad fellows. But really the question that we're left with is, are the season next conflict already there? Um, and I think, you know, it's been a misbag since then. Of course, the film ended in July 2017. Uh, but what's happened in the region is, is really uh, kept kept the theme of the film and, and the interest yeah. in the story very much alive, especially with, with what's uh, happened to, as you alluded to, in the last two to three months. We'll talk about that um, for me because, I, you know, I imagine you've been following 
that pretty closely. So talk about the protest. What's what's happening in Iraq right now? What are what's at the root of all this? Well, I think as you as you accurately summarize, I mean, the, what's what's interesting again here is that in this case we see Shia uh, in in Iraq protesting Iranian influence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing we can look back to the, the Bush administration's decision to invade Iraq. There's one clear win in the region, indisputable. Iran, their influence has grown uh, tenfold over over since the time we invaded, uh, to the point where they're they're well ensconced in, in the government in Baghdad and in different uh, different regions within Iraq, within Syria, within Lebanon, so even within Yemen. Um, so their power has really grown. Of course, this is destabilizing and concerning to Saudi Arabia. Um, but again, at the end of the day, what, what's uh, what's unusual, or perhaps not quite understood by by the U.S. Uh, general population, if you will, is the, the extent to which Shia within Iraq are are uh, resisting that, are resisting that influence and taking the streets to protest. And most of the protesters that you've seen so far that have been killed, unfortunately, have been on the south and and uh, Karbala and Basra and near Shia. So yeah, what what becomes of that is is to remain. You you may see a, you may see a, a Shia kind of non sectarian militia leader like Muqtada al Sadr uh, rise from the ashes and play some type of kingmaker role. You know, respected Shia militia warlord guy, but he's not an Iranian. Um, so that that could be the direction we're heading. And of course, the Sunni Shia divide is is also just on the surface and uh, remains remains a consideration. Yeah, as always. Um, I, I wonder if you would. Would you categorize what's what's happening now, the protests in Iraq uh, right now? Would you categorize that as part of a sort of Arab Spring, um, or is it something unique unto itself? I, I think it's an evolution from the Arab Spring. I, I think mm-hmm. this, I, I think it's really uh, that part of the world just kind of going through these aftershocks of really everything that's happened since 9/11. Uh, I mean, you you could go back as far as the Iran Iraq War and say yeah. that everything kind of started then, and then you had the shock wave of the Persian Gulf War, and then 9/11, and then the Iraq War, then the Arab Spring. So these are these are kind of the fault lines mm-hmm. that I think are, are kind of reshaping the continents over there. Um, yeah, and, and what comes of it, of course, we have to even talk about Lebanon. I mean, even mm-hmm. Lebanon has had the same sort of protests where they're they're pushing they're pushing back against the Iranian influence. I think the bigger question is how it's not necessarily how the U.S. is going to respond; it's how the mullahs in Tehran going to respond mm-hmm. uh, because I, I think they're not used to being in this position, you know, and they're they're used to flipping the switch off on the internet and being able to control the population. But we get to, you know, there's 800, 900 protesters dead this week from from one count. Uh, you're, you know, you're, 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 that's a different battle. Well, I, this is a, a question I, I have to confront every week doing this podcast, a podcast about foreign affairs, which is trying to impress upon, you know, U.S. listeners why any of this matters when we've all got our own problems, right, that are in our backyard. We've got domestic issues and policies that we're all debating. We've got a presidential election com- coming up. Um, you know, whether it's making the case about Syria or Brexit, why all this matters is something I have to do uh, every week. Make the case for U.S. listeners, U.S. audiences, why what's happening in Iraq right now matters to them. Well, I think exactly that sentiment uh, is, is really underestimated in, in how significant it was in propelling Donald Trump to office. Mm-hmm. That kind of America first, bring the troops home, mm-hmm. let's look inward. Uh I think you see these instincts, you know, the tweets or the off-the-cuff comments or decisions, proclamations, phone calls uh, that he kind of puts out there that have that really 
look, look inward, America first, Stratu, uh, but then to, to one extent or another, either the special interests in D.C. or his staff or foreign policy establishment or his generals kind of rein it in. And we saw that with, with what he you know, basically pulled the rug on the Kurds uh, mm-hmm. about a half, two months ago. Um, and then to have the troops come out and then the troops are going back in to protect the oil fields. So you know, I, think, I think it's interesting as much as anything else on the power of the American presidency and really how much you know, the, the establishment can kind of keep things on track, even though it seems to be spinning off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is an important part of the world. And I think at the end of the day, uh, he, the President Trump simply doesn't want to make the mistake uh, that others before have made and, and underestimate uh, the power of you know Islamic violent extremism uh, to, to rip up the region, to cause a migration crisis that destabilizes right. Europe. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's going to I think it's going to require a constant reminding of and counseling on the part of you know the foreign policy, the people that are interested in, in, in foreign policy in, in D.C. Uh, to really hold hold his focus to it, because I think there is that intent to just say, good enough and let's leave. And right. nowhere is that more evident than Afghanistan. Right. I mean, who wants to who wants to have their son die in Afghanistan next week? You know, in John Kerry's words, who wants to be the last person to die for a stake or whatever the quote was? Yeah. I mean, with with the amount of blood and uh, pressure that it's been spilt there, and to see kind of the status quo, uh, it, it raises important questions. Yeah, and I think what whatever your feelings um, and fatigue uh, uh, of these wars, which is understandable, you have to understand also that there are economic and national security implications in all of these theaters, and and so it's important that we pay attention to them. And I'm real grateful for Dan Gabriel for for you coming on. The film is Muzzle, and it's available on streaming platforms now. Uh, go watch it. Really, really I- I- impactful um, behind-the-scenes look at, at the conflict there. Um, thanks, Dan Gabriel. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And thank you for listening to Weekend Warriors. I'm SC Cup. Tune in next time. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.